Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Good, praise the Lord. Well, great to be here on Sunday. Best place to be. No better place to be than be on church, on especially on Easter Sunday, and so it's, a, it's such a joy to be here and to remember again the things, and, and to remember them in such a way as though we've never heard it before. This is the first time. And the thrill and the excitement that he rose from the grave. Let's pray. Father, do, Lord, bring it back. Bring back the thrill of the first love. Bring back to us, Lord, the wonder of it all, the marvel of it all, as we once again now, Lord, look into what happened when you rose from the dead, Lord Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna look at John 19, John 19 and John 20 as our base text for our foundation for looking at the resurrection. We really have to start with his death because the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection all together. And so let's begin looking now at John chapter 19, verse 38. John 19.38, where we have this written, 19.38, John. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, who at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths and, and with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Now keep going on in the next chapter, verse one. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin, which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. 
But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto him, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him away hence, tell me whence thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. This is the record. This is John's record of the resurrection. This is what happened. It all starts out with these words in in John chapter 19, verse 30, which were the last words of the Lord. When it says that, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now the Lord, as he's coming here to the cross, wanna think of him as the great warrior, the great warrior that has come onto the battlefield. He's the great seed of the woman. He's the head crusher of Satan, the one who who mankind has been looking forward to. Who is going to defeat our enemy, our Goliath, our Goliath who's come out onto the battlefield to taunt us, and we ran away like the tribes, like the, the armies of Israel. But here comes our great warrior, the long-anticipated one. He comes to the cross, and there he is. He's come, but he's special. He's different from anybody else. Why? Because he's lived a life of absolute, complete purity. He's not like you and me. He has never thought an evil thought. Not an evil word ever, ever came out of his mouth. He never did anything evil. He never did. He was pure. He was spotless. Hard to imagine. But he was also completely transparent. With the Lord, he lived a life you could just see right through him. He said the same thing in public. He said in secret. It was just, he was so consistent. And he turns to his enemies before he died, before he went to the cross, with this great question which he asked in John 8, 46, When he looked his enemies in the eyes, the ones who had sought occasion to accuse him, the ones who tried to catch him in his words, the ones who sent people out to try to entrap him in what he said, and he goes to them and he said, which one of you? Which one of you can convict me of sin? Bring it on. Which one of you can bring an accusation? Something I've done publicly, something I've done secretly. Which one of you? And the amazing thing was there was a deafening silence and that was the answer. That was the answer. None of them. He was the pure savior. Our savior, and I want you to think tonight of him as our warrior savior. The man of war. The Lord is a man of war. He's our warrior savior and he comes onto the battlefield dressed in an armor of purity. Complete purity. And he fights for our eternal lives. He flights from a position of absolute purity. And then what's amazing about how he battled on the cross? He did it all alone. He was absolutely alone. Friends, apostles, disciples, they ran for the hills. They completely deserted him. Much worse, Peter actually denied with swearing and with an oath. He said, I never knew him. I never knew him. I never knew him. He's alone. Man has forsaken him, and what's worse, God forsook him. 
God forsook him. And this is an amazing thing. Don't ask me to explain it, I can't. How can God forsake God? I don't know. But what happened is what we read in Matthew 27, 46, in Matthew 20, 47, 6, where it says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because at that moment, the Lord had made him the offering for sin. All of our sin was loaded onto him, and God the Father had to turn away. And at that moment, he experienced something he never has experienced in all of eternity and never will, the forsaking of God. He's all alone there with just our sins on him. And the question comes, and the question we look and say, will he hold up? Will he stand up? His friends, he says, he looked for comforters and found none. His man has forsaken him. God has forsaken him. Will he crumple? Will he completely fall apart? But he doesn't. He stands alone and he fights. What is he fighting? He's fighting the wrath of God. The wrath of God is now loaded on him. It's focused on him. He is enduring all the wrath that you and I all deserved and should have had. And he's enduring all of that And in this process, what he's doing, he's lifting up his heel, so to speak. And as he's lifting up his heel, his heel is bit by the snake, so to speak. And it's a bloody heel. And with that bloody heel and in the pain, he crushes the head of Satan like that. And what happens then is he destroys, it says in Hebrews 2.14, Hebrews 2.14, he destroyed him that had the power of death That is the devil. The devil had the power of death. How can we look at the grave and say, I'm not afraid? How can we look at death and say, I'm not afraid? Because he destroyed the power of death. That's the only reason. It's not because of drugs. It's because he destroyed the power of death. He fought and not only destroyed the power of death, but he disintegrated the works of the devil. It says that in 1 John 3, 8, 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might disintegrate. It says destroy. It means disintegrate the works of the devil, the fear, the depression, the agony of it all. He disintegrated that all on the cross. And he fought that battle. He defeated death. He defeated the grave itself. And he said that's what he was going to do. Sometimes the verbiage of what he said, we have to look back to the Old Testament. He spoke from the Old Testament of what he was saying on the cross. And one of those places is in Hosea 13, 14. In Hosea 13, 14, he's actually speaking from the cross, addressing the grave, addressing death, and he says in Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Imagine. He's on the cross, he's suffering so much, and he's looking death in the grave right in the face, and he says, I'm doing this for them. I'm gonna ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be thy plagues. He's saying to death, death, you just met your match. You just met your match, and I'm gonna be, I will be your plagues. And then he says to, to the grave, he says, oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. I am going to win. And so he has this firm assurance he's there on the grave. This is the whole basis. This verse in, in, in Hosea 13, 14 is where 1 Corinthians 15, 55 is extracted from. It's drawn from this where it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O grave, O death, where is thy sting? Where is thy sting? 
Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Maybe you know the story. It's a great story. It's a great story about the little girl and the, and the mother and a big bumblebee was flying around and the bumblebee stung the mother and then the bumblebee was flying off and the little girl said, oh, mommy, mommy, I'm so afraid of the bumblebee. She says, don't be afraid. She goes, he stung me instead of you. He doesn't have a stinger. And so he says, oh, death, where is thy sting? And we can do that. How can we possibly taunt death and taunt the grave? How can we say to death, death, where's your stinger? I know where your stinger is. Your stinger was put in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So you don't have another stinger for me. Now, on the battlefield, he died for one purpose. One purpose. And that purpose is given to us in 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once the just for the unjust. That'd be us. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Get us all together and bring us to God. We follow him right into heaven to God. That's why he died. That's why he died on the cross. He fought and he died. He died for our sins. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was victorious and he shouted, it's finished, it's finished. Like we've been reading here in John 19, 30. John 19, 30. And so there he is. He's there on the cross now. He's dead. He's absolutely dead. The soldiers come to confirm that each of the three, him and the two thieves, are dead. And they do that with a great mighty swing of the club that breaks the legs of those on the cross so that they can no longer support themselves and therefore their lungs immediately fill with fluids and they drown. And so they swing and they break the first one and they swing and they break the second one and they look at him and they say, it's not worth the effort, he's dead. He is very, very dead. It says in John 19, 32, John 19, 32, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first, the others which was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. They break not his legs. So they don't break his legs. And one of the soldiers, I don't know why, but for some reason, he takes his sword and he raises it up and he pierces the side of the Lord. And out of his side flows across the tip of that soldier's spear blood and water right down to the ground. We talked about earlier how that was the blood that cried out to God, that cried out to God, forgive them, forgive them. And when this happens, it's just a silence. The battlefield is silent. Our warrior savior is dead. He has accomplished it. He has did all that he did, but he died in the process. Sin was defeated, and that killed him. Death had been conquered. That killed him. Satan had been defeated. That killed him. God was appeased now, and we are free. We are free, and our warrior savior is dead. He's dead. Now, it seems like now the only thing left is to, in honor and in respect to our great warrior savior to bury the body, to bury the body. And so suddenly there emerges from out of nowhere this person. And we look and we say, let me see now, who is that? Is that, no, that's not Mary. That's not Mary Magdalene. That's not any of the apostles. That's not John. This unknown person just comes out. He's a person who's identified as Joseph of Arimathea. Who's ever heard of him before? Nobody. But he comes out of the shadows. He comes out of the corner. 
Inverse corner, in, 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 in verse 38, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, who knew? But secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body. So here's this man. We never see him before. He's Joseph of Arimathea. He, who is he? We look at him, we said, oh, he's a secret friend. He's a secret friend of Jesus. He's a secret friend of Jesus. He's a secret disciple of Jesus. And why was he a secret friend? Why was he a secret? Because he was afraid. And what was he afraid of? Well, the Jews had already decided, and we read about that in John 9.22, John 9.22, where it says the Jews had already agreed, already agreed, the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. What's that mean? He would be excommunicated from the synagogue. He would be cut off from his people. He would lose his community. He would lose his friends. He would lose his family. He would probably lose his job. He would be cut off. And the price was too great for Joseph of Arimathea. Just too great. And so therefore he decided to be a secret friend of the Lord Jesus. But now, having seen his valiant warrior savior die openly on the cross, Joseph doesn't care anymore what happens to him. He says, I'd rather step out in the open now and give up this secrecy, which he does. And he goes and openly begs the body of Jesus from Pilate, begs the body, and probably paid some money too. But Joseph is not the only one who's been overwhelmed by what he's seen. Now comes another secret friend, a secret friend who we've seen before, but it says in verse 39, there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. Oh, those are great words. At the first came to Jesus by night. That's how we saw him. We saw him in John 3, 2, John 3, 2, where it says the same came to Jesus by night. We saw him in John 7, 50, John chapter 7, verse 50, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, but praise the Lord where he's identified here. It's now added at the first he came by night because that's going to be no longer for him. No longer coming to Jesus by night. Now in broad daylight, he comes out and he joins this other secret friend, Joseph of Arimathea. And now they're out in the open and they've divided up their work. Joseph of Arimathea has gone to obtain permission, get permission from Pilate to get the body. And while he's doing that, Nicodemus is also going and obtaining spices, 100-pound word, from the merchants, getting all ready to prepare the body of Jesus for the burial. You would think that with the cross, which is very reproachful, the cross is very reproachful. I mean, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the Romans used to bury people nailed to the cross so that people would always have in their mind the shame of this person being crucified. It was very shameful. You would think with that, that that would have really caused them to be secret fans, but no. They've decided now to take their stand, as Paul did in Romans 1.16, and say, count me as not ashamed of the gospel. I know it's the power of God to salvation, to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the cross has not made them ashamed. The cross has made them bold. And now they come and they want to be openly identified with their warrior savior. And so they take the body, they got the permission from Pilate, they got the, the, the spices have been obtained, and now they, they both meet back together at the cross. 
Probably lift it up out of its socket, lay it down, pry the nails off of the hands and off of the feet, and then it says in verse 40, they took the body of Jesus. They took the body of Jesus and wound it with the linen clothes. So these secret friends are now openly seen together. They're up there on the hill at Calvary, and they can be seen. They're there. Oh, who is that? That's Joseph. Who is that? That's Nicodemus. What are they doing? Oh, they're lifting up the cross of Jesus and laying it. Oh, look, they're taking his body, and they immediately take it away. Where do they take it? Some house. Who knows? Some house, some house close by because it's Friday and it's sundown will be the Sabbath. They have to finish everything probably the same time of year as now, sundown happening around seven o'clock. He dies around three o'clock. There's a four-hour window in there. They've got to obtain permission. They probably have about two hours to get this job done. So they're rushing, 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 trying to get the body ready. And there they are. They lay the body down. They reverently begin to wash it. They wash off the dust. And then they look, they say, oh, it's the blood. Here's the blood. And they're looking at that blood on the body, and they're looking at the blood, and they're saying, this is the blood. This is the blood of my warrior savior that bought my redemption. They're, th- they're, th- they're thinking the words of 1 Peter 1.18. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And here it is right in front of us, And so as they begin to wash the blood off of the body, I'm sure they were thinking of, oh, wait, maybe they were talking among themselves, and maybe they were saying, you remember the Passover, the first Passover back in Exodus 12, 13? In Exodus 12, 13, where God had told each one of the families of Israel, blood is a token to you. It's a token to you on your houses where you are. He told them, he said, you go to the doorpost there. You put it on the top. You put it on the two sides. You watch that you see that blood. I'll see that blood. And when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over you. I'm going to skip you. The angel of death will not destroy you, destroy your firstborn like, it's good, like he's going to destroy all the firstborns throughout the Egypt. And so just imagine Nicodemus and Joseph now seeing this blood, and they say, it's like the blood of the first Passover. It's like the blood of the first Passover. It's like the blood of Leviticus 17.11, the blood where God said, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I gave it to you with a gift. I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. They're looking at the blood, and they're saying, this is the blood. Nicodemus says to Joseph, Joseph, this is the blood that makes an atonement for our souls. And you just imagine how those fathers, on the day after the Passover, after the terrible night, how they went to their doors, and as they washed off the blood that was on the door. They just paused for a moment and said, that was the blood that protected my family from my firstborn dying. That was the blood that protected my family from death. Here it is. And so there they're doing the same thing as they're washing the blood off and they're saying that. And we can just imagine how they stopped and how they thought, behold the blood, behold the blood. Whenever you think about this, I don't know, for me, I I just have this one uh, thought about them preparing this body for burial. And that was that, When I was growing up, I was a little kid, my mom remarried, and my stepfather was a writer, Ezra Goodman, and and I remember he came and and he had this painting. It was a magnificent painting that he put up in the living room. It was by Mexico's most famous artist, Diego Rivera, who was part Jewish and did the big mural in in the Jewish community center down in Mexico City. He did the murals all over the University of Mexico. But this was a beautiful mural. It was about seven feet tall, about five feet wide, and it was of an Aztec warrior, an Aztec warrior chief who had died. 
and he was laying there in his grave, and they just had adorned him all over his head and his body with beautiful flowers, and there he was lying there with his spear. And that picture just reflected honor and respect and reverence for this great warrior. That's what they were doing. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. 